Buckle up, everybody. It's time for some UFO review. This is all a test. This is all a test. This is all a test. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Uncover-Up. I'm one of your co-hosts, Lee Kunle, and with me, as always, is Nathan Radke. What a year it's been. I know it's only September. You say that a lot. Yeah, because and, what a and, year it always is. And when you say it, good things do not follow. No, almost never. But I mean, at least it's been interesting in that sense that when I say interesting, I mean disturbing. Yeah, interesting in that weirdly neutral way where it could be horrific or kind of cool. Yeah, yeah, it's definitely Nathan interesting. Nathan always means horrific. Sadly, I don't always want to, but... Uh, no, this one is less horrific than, than sometimes it's been. The reason this has been such an interesting year for us is that we started it saying, okay, the theme for this year is going to be the creation of the story of the UFO. Yeah. Like, how the UFO... How prescient was that? Yeah, I no mean, kidding. it's as though we knew, as though somebody had, like, tipped us off on the UAP hearings and the big flap that was going to come. That's right. Very suspicious. Weirdly and then since then, suspicious. we've seen people come forward... And we've done episodes on them about, you know, whistleblowers who say that the American government has alien technology. And then, of course, in Mexico, we yep. mentioned this briefly in an episode. The, the unboxing of the aliens. The unboxing of alien bodies. <laughs> it's, it's been a time. It has been a time. It it's been, been a, a flap. Yeah, it has been a flap. We have been flapping all over the place. Yep. We've been sort of directing this forward in time, but also asking the question... Like, why did this UFO story get so dark and disturbing? It didn't yeah. start out that way, but it definitely ended up that way. Mm -hmm. And so we've been asking that question, we've been going along, and we're about to hit the 90s in that story. Right. And in the 90s, things get quite disturbing and kind of explosive, literally. Yeah. Yep. And so we're going to do an episode, finally, after mentioning him probably a, a hundred times. Way too much than he actually deserves, I'm afraid. But that's going to be the next episode. Yeah, we're his, going to do an episode on William Cooper. Yes, his his main work, Behold a Pale Horse. Yeah. That's coming next. That brings us into the 90s. We're going to also, in a future episode, maybe talk about the X-Files. Yep. And then take it forward from there. But since it's been such a long and winding road, Maybe we just have to do a quick summary again on how it is that we got from the 40s to the 90s at all. Yeah, this is the first time we've ever had to do an episode like this. We're doing review. Yeah. But there's going to be some new stuff in this episode regardless. Okay. All right, so this is a review of how did we get here with UFOs? What is the story of UFOs starting from 1947 to now? We begin 1947. We begin in June of 1947. All right. All right, so... No, wait, I'm going back. Ah. We're going to begin... We're going to begin before the beginning. We're going to begin in 1947 and then go back a couple years. World War II. Yes, okay. Gunners who are looking out of the windows of their B-29 bombers mm -hmm. are encountering some odd lights in the sky. Aha! Uh -huh. So as those gunners are peering out their windows looking for enemy fighters, instead they're seeing strange lights and sometimes even trying to shoot down these strange lights to mm -hmm. no avail. And they became known as Foo Fighters, and there's some debate about why that was the case. Some said that it was French for Feu, fire, okay. firefighters. But regardless, a lot of pilots were coming back and saying, yeah, I took a couple shots at some, some Foo Fighters and on that mission. And a lot of pilots are seeing them. That's sort of in the background. That's mm -hmm. sort of happening. Now let's move up to June of 1947. 
This is one of the key moments in the history of UFOs, because in June of 1947, we have Kenneth Arnold, a private pilot, flying over the mountains, uh, Washington State, right, and encounters something strange in the sky. That's right. Now, he comes back, and he reports this to the media. He says they moved as if they were skipping across a lake, like a saucer skipping across a lake. Right. So I'm imagining sort of, you know, when you skip stones. Yeah. Like that. Yeah, it's a weird way to describe it. And the person who is reporting this then talks about how Arnold has seen flying saucers. Right, which is a much more literary and pithy and imaginative way of writing an article headline, yeah. I think. It really is, is, is a much more interesting image. But the problem is it isn't accurate, because if you look at what Kenneth Arnold says he saw, it doesn't look like a saucer. It doesn't look like the classic flying saucer that we all have in our heads when we think of UFOs. They're more like boomerangs, aren't they? Boomerangs or bats, yeah. like definitely not a saucer. But this is ground zero. This right. is where we first encounter the term flying saucer, and then it just blows the F up from we here. We are off to the races. In fact, we're off to the races pretty quickly because in July of 1947, just one month later, we have an incident where there is a stricken flying saucer, again in the skies over the West Coast, that actually crashes a little bit, killing a dog, injuring a person, and destroying a boat. Hmm. Do you know about the... Have you heard of... Have you done work on the Maury Island incident? No. Oh, okay. Well, this will be new stuff. There's new stuff. Right. In a review. This is kind of not even fair yeah. to add new stuff in the review. My students hate when I do that. Yeah. Well, here we go. Just a month after Kenneth Arnold comes down and says, guys, there's stuff in the sky. Two patrolmen, uh, Harold Dahl and Howard Chrisman, claim to have witnessed a group of flying saucers over Maury Sound, West Coast. They said that one of the saucers... Now, this is already fascinating to me because they describe them as looking like saucers. Mm -hmm. And remember, Arnold didn't say they look like saucers, but the newspaperman did. Right. And so, so here we go. It's so a here sticky we go. idea. So right? already, exactly, already the idea of the saucer is getting sticky. So these two guys say, yeah, we saw a group of flying saucers over Maury Sound. One of the saucers appeared to be in some kind of distress. They were sort of hovering. They were making weird noises. We couldn't identify them. One of them seemed to be, you know, perhaps crashing. And it ejected a bunch of metallic material out of itself, wow. which crashed into the water, which damaged a boat, broke a guy's arm, and this is the terrible part, killed a dog. Killed a dog. That's really sad. Yeah. So the men were put in touch with Kenneth Arnold. Of course, because Kenneth Arnold, this was like a brand new thing, this, this flying saucer phenomenon. Kenneth Arnold was considered the expert already. And so the men were put in touch with Kenneth Arnold through Raymond Palmer, the editor of Amazing Stories. Well, I was gonna want, I was wondering if he was gonna come up because you really can't tell the Kenneth Arnold story without also telling the Ray Palmer story. And he, of course, is, you know, sensationalizing a lot of these accounts in his Amazing Stories, which is sort of it's not exactly like a newspaper like The Inquirer, but it's it's at that level of truthfulness where any really outlandish story is taken as fact and then published as like, hey, kids, look look at this weird new thing. I think you would agree when studying UFOs, separating fact from fiction becomes extremely tricky. Yeah. And I think this is part of the reason. If yeah. we look at where this idea forms, we have a mixture of people like Kenneth Arnold, 
who I think legit saw something. He's not a scammer. He's just a confused observer who's seen some weird stuff. And then you have the Ray Palmers. But it gets even worse because they then start like talking to each other, hanging out with each other. And it's not as though you have Kenneth Arnold trying to keep Ray Palmer at a distance being like, no, no, this, this guy's sensationalizing it. They kind of get in on it. And now you're like, wait a minute, is Kenneth Arnold maybe now turning a buck or does he just enjoy the notoriety or is this his vehicle for getting something out there? So it becomes, as you say, so difficult to really disentangle fact from fiction. And again and again, we encounter these people like Ray Palmer. We're going to encounter more of them later on. Sure. These people who, their interest is not in getting to the truth. Their interest is in selling something. In this case, it's selling magazines. It's often selling books or selling speaking tours. Right. And... That, that's an issue because those people tend to muddy the waters because they aren't there for pure investigative purposes. They're there to make a buck. And so Palmer, I think, realizes here's an opportunity to make a buck. Sure. And so Palmer puts Arnold, Kenneth Arnold, in touch with these two patrolmen, Dahl and Chrisman. Now, what Arnold does is he contacts the Air Force. Okay. And so now we have another organization involved in the UFO story, mm -hmm. the Air Force, and Air Force intelligence, and all that comes with that. The cover-ups, the disinformation, the, the, the lies, all of these things that are going to come with intelligence agencies, now they're all in it. Now we've got observers who want to know what's going on. We've got sort of hustlers who are trying to make a buck. We've got the, the Air Force intelligence who are, are, have an interest in fighting the Cold War. It's all, it's all there from the very beginning right. of this story. Yeah. So the Air Force sends a guy called Lieutenant Frank Brown and a guy called Captain William Davidson to fly to the area to investigate this story. And on their way back, their B-25 bomber crashes and they're killed. Oh, wow. Yeah. And that's going to raise some eyebrows. Sure thing. Because we have these guys, Dahl and Chrisman, who are saying, yeah, we're being told by these shadowy figures that we got to stay quiet about what we saw. We're being threatened. These two Air Force investigators, they look at the material that Chrisman and Dahl have, and then they just happen to get killed in a plane crash? Weird. Like, what are the chances that this crash was an accident right. versus some kind of deliberate cause? Well, this is very frustrating. Our brains don't like this kind of thing. Okay. But... You're going to tell me it just happened. Yeah, it's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. It's a coincidence. It's not that unusual. The B-25, I mean, a lot of planes crashed back then. Okay. The B-25, it was a surplus war machine. Like, a lot of them crashed over the years. It's, it's unsatisfying. But the FBI, uh, now we've got dead intelligence officers. The mm -hmm. FBI investigates the whole thing and finds it to be a hoax. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Chrisman and Dahl were trying to pull off a hoax. It wasn't their fault the plane crashed. Well, kind of, though. Well, I mean, indirectly. Kind of is. Yeah. I mean, that's, the, that's kind of the tragedy in a way. Like, that plane might not have crashed. Oh, dear. Because well, the evidence that they had, the two intelligence guys had, was these guys don't have anything. Right. Like, the, the material that they have, it, it's just they've got a little bit of aluminum. There's nothing supernatural. There's nothing extraterrestrial about any of this. So, hold on. Did the dog die? Or was that just part of a hoax, too? That was part of the hoax, too. 
Okay, so I feel slightly better. Yeah. But now I, at the at the of course, cost two guys of, are dead. At, at the cost of two human lives. Yeah. I mean, Nathan. And they so, they had been they the two guys Dahl and Chrisman had been going around trying to sell this story, and that's okay. of course why Ray Palmer is involved to begin with. Okay. So already we are like, what, a month into the first UFO sighting. We've got a second one. We've got a, a publicist involved and we've got the Air Force involved. And now we've got a crashed airplane. I'm guessing this makes the news. Oh, absolutely, it does. So, so there's more public hype around it. Yep. And this is just four or five weeks since... Kenneth Arnold's first sighting. Yeah. Now, Kenneth Arnold himself is actually pretty unimpressed with this story. Okay. Uh, he doesn't agree that Dahl and Christmas saw anything. He agrees that, you know, this material, this so-called material that they found, there, there's nothing to it. Mm -hmm. And you know who else investigated this and said there was nothing to it is, of course... Captain Ruppelt of Blue Book. Yeah, Captain Ruppelt of Blue Book who investigated the incident once he became part of Blue Book, this Air Force investigation into UFOs, and he called the whole thing the first, possibly the second best, and the dirtiest hoax in the UFO history. Wow. Yep. Now that's saying something given the amount of hoaxes, both good and bad, but curiously also dirty. Yeah. Like, well, I is think it because, because of the of deaths. The, the deaths. Because okay. of the deaths. Yeah. Now, the FBI didn't charge the men for this. Okay. Because, uh, again, it was decided, like, no, this crash wasn't their fault. So we start off, already it's a mess. It's only been a month. <laughs> it's been a month in and the world of UFOs, and it's a mess. Yep. Now, this story would show up again, not as a hoax, though, as described as real, in two places that we're going to get to later. One, Gray Barkers, they knew too much about flying saucers. Yep. And two, MJ-12. Oh, wow. Okay. Nice, so, ni nice foreshadowing there. Yeah. That's going to work well for our next episode. All right. So that's the first month of UFOs. <laughs> we only have, what, how many more years to go? Many, many years. I'm going to skip a year and go to 1949. Okay. The Aztec flying saucer crash. Right. We talked right. about this briefly. We have talked about this. Have we talked about it on air? Yes. In, in their podcast. Okay. Yeah, because... So this is the template for what later becomes the Roswell. Exactly. Incident. When we talked about Grush, I, I mentioned good, this. Good, I'm going to go over it again briefly. According to journalist Frank Scully, several flying saucers crashed in the late 1940s in New Mexico, not in Roswell, right. but in Aztec. And the American government recovered technology from the wreckage, as well as the remains of the aliens, dozens of them, who looked like small, blonde, blue-eyed human beings. Uh -huh. What would eventually be called as the Nordics. Nordics. Although the Nordics are normally referenced as being tall. Right. These guys are small. They haven't gotten the story straight yet. Yeah. The two men pushing the story to Scully were Silas Newton and Leo Gebauer. And these guys were scammers again. They were attempting to sell devices to oil men that they claimed were based on alien technology. Okay. That they could use to find oil. Okay. Because, of course, alien technology would be great at finding oil in deserts. Of course it would be. Yeah, because I'm sure that aliens are super interested in I mean, how do you think they, how do you think they crossed billions of kilometers of outer space, yeah, hippie? They, High-octane gasoline. Exactly. Yeah. It's the only way to break the light speed barrier. Yeah. And so these two guys, they sold their story. They were asked by the San Francisco Chronicle to provide physical evidence for their claims. And again, kind of like the other two scammers from the Murray Island incident... They just send some ordinary aluminum. 
Okay. And it, it's analyzed, and it's like, this isn't from space. This is from, you know, Boeing. Now, Newton and Gebauer were eventually charged with and convicted of fraud in 1953. Oh, okay. And this story, so now we're two years in, and we're knee-deep in scams. Yeah. But this story, of course, would show up again in the 1970s, but not with Aztec attached to it, but with Roswell. With Roswell. And Roswell did actually happen, or something happened at Roswell. Yeah, something there was did an crash incident. at Roswell. Yeah, there was an incident at Roswell. And eventually what happens is that this Aztec story starts to bleed into the Roswell story. And that's the one that everyone remembers today. Yep. 1950s. Okay. We're making progress. Sort of. We're like... We're more confused now than we were, so that's progress. <laughs> All right. Okay, so Major Donald Kehoe publishes Flying Saucers Are Real in True Magazine. All right. Now, again, if we're looking at, like, the cast of characters here, Kehoe is, I think, one of those legitimate investigators who wants to know what's happening. Yeah. He definitely has an interest in it being UFOs. And he is trying to sell books. He is trying to sell books, but it doesn't have the same kind of scammy flavor like some of the earlier stuff. Yeah, he's doing like, some wild speculation. Yes, but he isn't hanging a like a lampshade off the edge uh, from from the end of a fishing pole and taking a picture of it as it's moving around and claiming that's a flying saucer, right. which people were doing. Yeah, you know. Yeah, Kehoe, so, he's one of those guys. He's not a scammer, but he is a believer. Yeah. And he argues in Flying Saucers Are Real that flying saucers... Are real. Yeah. Good title. It's exactly what it says in the tin. <laughs> and that they have extraterrestrial origins. By 1955, he's arguing that the government is actively covering it up. Mm -hmm. 1951, something really important happens. And I think that like, you can't overstate the importance of this moment in the story of UFOs. Is it movies? It is a movie. Which movie is it? <laughs> Um, is it the Klaatu one? It is the Klaatu one. Oh, uh, hold on. What's it called? Uh, I can, I can see it. I can see him with his robot. Klaatu, Barada, Nikto. Um. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Drew Pearson. We bring you this special radio television broadcast in order to give you the very latest information on an amazing phenomenon. The arrival of a spaceship in Washington. You're not going to get it. Duh, I feel like the quiz show timer is counting down. Okay, what is it? It's again? an awkward title. The Day... The Earth Stood Still. There you go. Got it. Partial credit. Partial credit. So why do I argue that that movie is so unbelievably important to the UFO community and the UFO story? It really adds a lot of the narrative to what gets transmitted later as part and parcel of, say, for example, why are the aliens visiting us? They are interested in our technology, specifically in the Americans' uh, discovery of atomic power and its use in an atomic bomb. They want to keep us safe. They want to prevent us from hurting ourselves and progressing into the future peacefully. This is a theme that kind of gets moved forward in other sci-fi franchises as well and is taken up in the UFO lore as one of the kind of staple ideas, like the aliens are interested in us because we have become technologically sophisticated, so now we're worth their time. And that's part of it. And the other part, of course, is 1951. People are becoming terrified of the prospects of nuclear war. Right. And so... Which is why they're coming to save us. That's why the aliens are coming to save us. They've noticed that we've tested nuclear bombs, 
and they're showing up to be like, guys, you're going to destroy yourselves if you aren't careful. I came here to give you these facts. But if you threaten to extend your violence, this earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Right. You could see why that story, that movie would resonate with people who were terrified, who were building bomb shelters, who were looking to the sky, terrified of seeing nuclear bombs falling on them. Yeah. And then the, the solution seems to be to join some kind of intergalactic UN, yeah. where, <laughs> which is very much what was happening politically as well. Yeah, the, I mean, it's a, very, it's a very Earth story. Yeah. As all sci-fi stories are in their way. Yeah, because, I mean, our imaginations are kind of limited by the fact that we see the world like our world, mm -hmm. basically. 1952, Project Blue Book starts up, replacing older projects like Saucer and Grudge. It starts off with, of course, Captain Edward Ruppelt and Dr. Alan Hynek actually trying to investigate UFO sightings. That's right. And they're doing it because there is an, a legitimate national defense security question. Yeah. Are these weapons that, that, say, the Soviets have developed, even if it were a natural phenomenon or potentially even extraterrestrials, do they pose a, either of those solutions, do they pose a national security threat of some sort? So they're going out and they're trying to figure out what's really happening and they're serious about it because there could potentially be some danger there. And one of the things they notice is that the American government has been lying already. It's only 1952. It's only been five years. And Ruppelt realizes, no, wait, the American government has already lied about UFOs. Mm -hmm. When in 1948, uh, Captain Mantell goes up to intercept a UFO in the skies of Kentucky, and he then his was, plane is destroyed. He was uh, chasing Venus. That, that was the official line from the government. He was chasing Venus. Ruppelt asks Hynek, is that possible? Would Venus have been visible at that time? Hynek says no. Ruppelt's like, well, then the government's lying. Yep. So here we have a guy who was killed chasing a UFO, and then the American government lies about it. Of course, what Ruppelt realizes is that what Mantell was chasing was actually a top-secret spy balloon. Skyhook project. But again, we're only five years in and things are a mess. And they're about to get messier because from the early 50s to the mid 60s, we see a new movement emerge in the UFO community. And we did a whole episode on these guys. It's the contactees. Exactly. George Adamski, George Van Tassel, Howard Menger, Woody Derenberger. They all claim to have made contact, often through telepathy, but often also they meet at diners and stuff. Yeah. You just go to a diner and you meet aliens at the diner. Uh, where are the aliens almost always from? Venus. Right. Because at the time, that seemed like the most logical place for aliens to come from. We know now, of course, that Venus is just... Not a nice place to be. Yeah. Venus is terrible. And they say, you know, there's these aliens show up. They look like humans. They've got silver jumpsuits. They give flying saucer rides. They have warnings of nuclear disaster. This earth of yours will be reduced to a burned out cinder. Almost as if all these people had watched The Day the Earth Stood Still. Yeah. We were already getting that feedback loop yep. of fiction feeding into general pop culture, which then also disseminates into the UFO community and those people who are taking it seriously. Yeah. But the contactees, by and large, were not taking it seriously. They were, by and large, people who were playing a trick. I mean, they were hoaxers, but they were kind of... I don't know. I'm, I mean, I have this... Were they... I mean, was yeah, it no, they dangerous? Were. Yeah, well, no, they were definitely it. hoaxers. They were definitely it, hoaxers. Was it, 
but was it a th- like was it dangerous what they were doing well it, that's the thing right it seems very hokey and silly they feel like tricksters who are kind of almost doing it with a bit of a twinkle in their eye and, and all of the aliens that they talked to were trying to save us from nuclear war yeah which is an admirable thing to do. I mean, you and I are, I think, a little puritanical when it comes to these questions. You are. So, well, no, I think you are too. I think there is a deep puritanical streak to like truthiness in you where you're like, no, you can't lie. So I don't know. Maybe for the two of us, can I speak for you? Like we would be, this time, we would maybe. feel uncomfortable doing it. Because you don't know what the consequences are. Well, that's the thing. The unintended consequences like of you, this. You, you get two guys coming out in an airplane and their airplane crashes. Yeah. I mean, there is a still culpability there in some way. Yeah. And also, I would argue that there is a problem in... Like, we had some legit problems here on Earth. We were facing the threat of nuclear annihilation. Yeah. To believe that somebody was going to come from outer space to rescue us from that... I think makes it less likely that we think, okay, well, we've got to come up with some human-based solutions here. Right. So there are some, there are, they didn't mean harm. They weren't helping very much. They weren't helping and they were lying and they were scamming. Yeah. And they were selling books. And they were selling books. That's the other thing. It wasn't just a scam for the good fun of it. No. Now this movement, the contact team movement is greeted with a lot of hostility from the UFO movement. Like Kehoe. Yeah. I mean, Kehoe thinks these guys are a bunch of quacks, right? Yeah, which they are. And also, I mean, Ruppelt, who was one of the most serious UFO investigators and had got to the point where he was saying, I don't know what a lot of these sightings are. These are good sightings from like reliable witnesses. The American government lies about it. Something is going on here. He meets with George Adamski, one of the the biggest contactee scammers of all. This is already when Ruppelt's done with Blue Book, though, right? Yeah, but he's still got an interest in the UFO movement. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he goes to meet him at his like little hot dog diner thing. Yeah. And after talking to Adamski, Ruppelt's like, I'm out. Yeah. I'm done with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. For sure. And it it can get quite dangerous. After making contact with aliens, allegedly through automatic writing, which is where you channel uh, like some kind of force through your body. And so you're writing stuff down with your arm, but you don't know what it is. Mm -hmm. So you can do that with ghosts or you can do it with spirits. Or in this case, you could do it from aliens. Mm -hmm. There was a woman named Dorothy Martin in uh, the mid-50s who prophesied the end of the world by flood. That the aliens were warning her, the world's going to end, it's going to be a flood. Good news, a select group of true believers are going to be rescued beforehand by flying saucer. Uh Now, remember that story for a couple episodes from now. Oh, that gets so dark. That sort of thing can get extremely dark, and we're going to talk about... Another thing that we keep promising and yet haven't done. Heaven's I mean, this Gate. is like this endless trailer to these next episodes. Yeah, needless to say, this this does not occur. The flood doesn't happen. The flying saucer doesn't land. In 1956, Gray Barker publishes They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers. Now, you're going to take over here for a second. All right. We've already been talking about some scammers, some hoaxers. Yeah. Tell us about Gray Barker. Gray Barker's one of them. Uh, we did a whole episode on the real men in black, and he is at the origin of that element of the mythology. Now, just to say that there is some truth to it in a sense, just not the way that Gray Barker worked it up. So There's some truth to the idea that if you say you saw UFO, you might get hassled 
and some attention from sure especially if you officers. actually did see some secret u.s technology that was currently being tested in your area for whatever reason and you are you, gonna get you shut happen up. upon it and then you start blabbing about it it's not inconceivable that somebody some official person will show up and ask you to stop talking yeah. But that's not what we mean because Gray Barker, a known hoaxer and scammer and grifter, was basically pulling a con on his buddy who had started a citizen sleuthing organization, makes Barker one of the senior members. And then Barker turns a, I don't even know now if it really happened or not, like if some cops came to his door one day. But he turned that into this elaborate spiel about how the FBI was now monitoring him and his buddy Bender was his name and their citizen sleuth organization. And they basically told him to shut up about it and not talk to anybody. And if they did, they would be in big trouble. And that is and then this story gets embellished and elaborated because Barker, of course, is interested in selling books and this is, again, like the monetary dimension of these scams is this is how they're doing it, is they make a name for themselves and then people who are invested or interested in the UFO phenomena go buy their books. Mm -hmm. So Barker is behind, well, he so he, he then, he's published a bunch of books. He's behind Men in Black. He gives talks throughout the 50s, 60s, 70s, even into the 80s, where he is talking about various sightings that he's seen he's one of the guys who puts like a a kind of like toy on the end of a fishing line and then takes a picture of it and that's one of the you know amazing photographs that he will show over and over again in these talks there's a lot of question as to you know like he knew he didn't believe it yeah but it's not clear like obviously a lot of people in the audience didn't believe it but there was almost the sense I get from him is that there was almost a little bit of a wink-wink towards the audience. Again, where he was having a bit of fun, and that's how I think he thought you were supposed to take it. But there you go. Anyway, he's a known scammer. Gray Barker has, I think, a, an, an unbelievably on-the-nose name. Yeah. His name is perfect Yeah, for a bunch of reasons. Start with Gray. Okay. We have associations, little like the the Greys. They're a kind of a kind of alien yep. in in this mythology. So already that's great. Also, the gray area between yes. truth nice. and fiction. Nice, fantastic first name, Barker. The guy's a carnival barker, basically. Yeah, uh, he is saying, you know, I'm going to fool you, and then he fools you exactly, and he shows you how he's fooling you, but yeah. you're still you enjoy being fooled. Yeah. And again, Gray Barker is one of those people who shows up early and he shows up often mm -hmm. in the UFO world and he contributes so much to the mythology, but so much of it is, again, just him knowingly lying and hoaxing and, and selling so, stuff. It scams all the way down. Barker is actually a kind of connective tissue throughout the 70s and 80s. And again, foreshadowing the upcoming episode... Um, we're going to hear his name again as he is right at the end of his life, the beginning of another major UFO, what what, what should we call him, uh, figurehead or... Paranoid spokesman. 
or a paranoid spokesman for the UFO movement sort of takes the baton from him like in a relay race and then just keeps it going. Yeah, as like in the early 50s, Gray Barker jumps on the UFO bandwagon because it's a way of making money. He stays in it from the 50s and 60s and 70s. He becomes increasingly, from what we understand from his friends, he becomes increasingly kind of bitter and cynical. And then by the end of it, he, he, he says he wished he had never even gotten into it yeah. at all. Because it's not, it stops being fun. Yeah. I mean, once you get into the cattle mutilations and then, you know. Oh, we'll get into those. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And But then also like all the stuff that's coming in the 90s, it gets dark and it has all these, the militia overtones with it. And yeah. It's not fun. The 1960s, things start to get a bit darker because we move from the contactee movement to the... Abductee movement. Exactly. And it gains traction after the widely published story of Betty and Barney Hill. A journey interrupted. Yeah, which establishes some of the classic tropes that would occur. What we associate, if you think of like a classic UFO abduction, you're probably thinking of... What happened to Betty and Barney Hill, really? Yeah, it's nighttime, maybe you're in a car, your car starts acting funny, the radio starts to act up, you look out the window, is, is something chasing you? Is something following you? Wait, it's... It's hours later. You're back on the road again. You don't remember where you've been. What's going on? You go and you get hypnotized because you're having weird dreams and strange nightmares and and you can't figure out why. And then through hypnosis, you uncover this story, that missing time you were actually aboard a flying saucer. And they were doing tests on you. Yep. Right? The probing. The probing. And yeah, then they wiped your memory. Now, just speaking of movies, at this not quite in the 60s, but heading into the 70s, we have movies that start to depict the abduction scene almost precisely that way. So if, as Nathan was describing it, you maybe had some flashbacks of certain kinds of movies that you have seen. This is, again, this kind of feedback loop where filmic culture is introducing into the popular consciousness really almost stereotypically worked up versions of these stories. The the car starts to shake, it goes dead... Blinding light. Blinding light. Maybe you're like burned you're by You're frozen. It. Yeah. You get beamed up or in some way or incapacitated. And yeah, there you go. Yeah. And so now a bunch of things have been established here as those tropes and also hypnosis as a UFO investigation tool. Yeah. Now, where do you stand on the quality of hypnosis as a route to truth? It's even worse than I thought. Okay, again, here's this time where we need to kind of put our cards on the table as researchers. You and I are not psychologists. We, that's not our background. But I do defer to people who are. So, so a woman who does incredibly good research in this and is very renowned in her field, Elizabeth Loftus, talks a lot about how hypnosis is one of the key ways in which false memories can actually be implanted and established. So far be it from this idea that hypnosis will somehow uncover some hidden truth, I think, in fact, that it will saddle you with untruth, with some kind of remembered story that didn't happen through leading questioning, innuendo, suggestion, uh, all kinds of things that the analysts themselves might not be intending. You might have somebody who themselves is a extraterrestrial UFO skeptic, But because of the kinds of questions, the leading questions that are introduced in that context of hypnosis, it has been demonstrated in laboratory uh, recreations 
uh, that you can in fact generate false memories in people like this. So I, I mean, in anybody, not people like this, in anybody can yeah, have people false like memories. us, people like us, right? Not yeah. UFO believers, just in. And I think you, I remember when we did this episode, you, Nathan, in fact, had an example of after the fact how other psychiatrists did this as an experiment to kind of determine whether you could generate UFO experiences in people who weren't even coming to you with that problem? And the answer was, yes, indeed you can. And you could do it fairly easily. So, uh, what a mess. So now, as we hurtle through the 60s, as we're trying to see the UFOs, we get increasingly foggier. And we keep adding to the fog. We add to the fog with hoaxes. We add to the fog with scams. We add to the fog with official government disinformation. And now adding to that, we have, we, we've added hypnosis. Right. And so we're not getting less foggy. We're getting foggier and we're about to get, it's about to get very dark and foggy because now we hit the 1970s. Yeah. And the optimism of the 1960s is going to fade into the cynicism of the 1970s in part because of all of the government corruption, the real legitimate government corruption that gets exposed in the 1970s through good journalism, through good historians. And done this a million times, we can just breeze through. MKUltra. Contelpro. All of the Castro assassination attempts. <laughs> Nixon and Watergate. Sea spray. I mean, these things are all real. Yeah. And in the 1970s, they're all coming out. They're all coming out sort of at once. And it really shakes. If anybody was still had this kind of naive view about the American government, you right. by They're the end of us. the 70s, you no longer have that feeling. Yeah, it is gone. So people were afraid of their own government. People were afraid of satanic cults in the 1970s. Right, that's when that gets going. We had the Manson family murders at the end of the 60s. There was also a bunch, again, of hoax exposés. People who were writing saying, oh, I've escaped this satanic cult or I've escaped that satanic cult. And they hadn't. They were lying right. and selling books. But again, it adds to the noise. It adds to the mess. Cashing in John, on growing fear. John Todd, is that his name? Yeah, that's one of the guys who was going from church to church doing his expose on how he was a high-ranking member. He was a high-ranking witch in the Illuminati. Right. Like there was so many And had of been like guys. Kennedy's main witch or something. <laughs> yep. In the middle of this, in the middle of this sort of toxic stew, a bunch of mutilated cows show up. And so, of course, people superimpose their fear of the satanic, their fear of governments. Now, all of a sudden, the government is mutilating cows. The Satanists are mutilating cows. And, of course, the UFOs are mutilating cows. Yeah. In 1975, Travis Walton claims to have been kidnapped by aliens. And unlike Betty and Barney Hill, which actually was kind of a pleasant interaction. Yeah. They were polite. They were friendly. They spoke English. They were nice. They were going to give Betty a book. Yeah, they were going to give her a book and everything. (laughs) And then they changed their minds. Travis Walton is taken against his will, and he's gone for days, and he describes this sort of terrifying encounter he has. We have a guy called Paul Benowitz, who in the 70s, interested in this cattle mutilation scene, he starts to go to UFO conferences. Yeah. And on British television, at the end of the 70s, we have a movie titled Alternative 3, which goes out into the world and wreaks some havoc. It is still wreaking havoc. It's going to wreak so much havoc in the 1990s. But what's worse is that Alternative 3 isn't just a movie. It gets turned into a book. Now, and very quickly, even though we did a whole episode, very quickly, what is it? 
It is a mock documentary which was supposed to be released on April Fool's Day, in which there was apparently three alternatives for dealing with the coming overpopulation of the Earth and the poisoning of the atmosphere and all this kind of stuff. And the third alternative, hence the title Alternative 3, was to get a select group of people off of the Earth. That this had already been... this plan was being uncovered in the documentary, but it had been already going since at least the early 60s and planned into the 50s. And we were now already at the beginning of the 60s, had moon bases, there was arable land on the moon where like plants and stuff were growing. It's just not the moon that you get to see through the media. And there was another base that was being developed on Mars. And then there were going to be people who are going to go there and these were that this is how the documentary apparently that's their in is that they're looking for missing people who were doing really well in their field there were these experts they uncovered this big plot to send people to the to outer space in order to get to start a new human colony because the earth is dying now this is a science fiction film that's that make, it's made to look like a documentary. Right. It's like the Blair Witch Project or something. Yeah, exactly. Now, and, and a lot of people watching were like, oh, that was clever and fun. Yeah, and there's a lot of clues. Like, for example, the actors' names are in the credits. As actors. As actors. Playing roles. Right. If, if and, the some rest, of those, and some of the acting is a bit... Mm. Yeah, so if the rest of the story hadn't tipped you off, by the time you get to the end, it's like, oh, well, there's the... But... I think the damage is more done with the book where that line is really a lot more blurry. In the book, there is no overt reference to the fact that this is a joke. In the TV show, there were a bunch of hints, including that was supposed to, although it wasn't originally released on April 1st. And also the special effects were pretty janky. Well, there's that. Exactly. The, the proof of life on Mars ended up being a guy's finger in the sand. And so there was like sand was moving. And you were like, oh my goodness, there's... Okay, but the, the damage is really done with the book which purports to be nonfiction. And there's no, besides the fact that it is badly written and has no credible citations anywhere in it at all. And uh, anyway, that's alternative three. And whee, that's coming back. It's all coming back. Coming back next episode. And so the situation we are in now is just an absolute... Like, yeah, because now you have fake and real scams in a way. Like, you have the documentary, which is just pulling your leg. It's making fun of the situation. But then you have other scammers who are pretending it's real to make a buck. And then you have the disinformation where the, you know... Doty and Benowitz and the whole government stuff is deliberately we hit that yet. Right. Okay, we're still doing that. Yep. But it's that's how complex and messy this is. It's yeah. a mess. And in the meantime, this episode should be titled It's a Mess. It's a mess. In the meantime, there's stuff in the sky and honest people are looking up and saying, "Hey, there's stuff." Yeah. What's that? That's yeah. weird. No. Yeah. And then we hit the 80s. Mhm. And does do things get dialed back in the UFO world or do things get cranked the f up? Yeah, there's only one way this narrative keeps going. It's going to get cranked. I mean, in a way, you need something harder the next time around. And so we had the cattle mutilations, and and we had the the contactees and the 
abductees. But now we need more now, right? In the 80s. And so then we hit the 1980s, and now we have things like Richard Doty, the Air Force intelligence officer who is deliberately spreading disinformation in the UFO community to people like Paul Benowitz. Information that then circulates and we've encountered when we've interviewed people who believe in UFOs now, that information has not gone away since the 1980s. It just spreads and becomes part of the story, part of the mess, part of the fog. In 1984, the MJ-12 documents are released. Oh, yeah. So very quickly, what's the MJ-12? The MJ-12 documents are, it's probably made by Doty and another guy who used to write for the Enquirer. The long and the short of it is that these are fake U.S. top secret documents purporting to have to be proof of the fact that there exists alien technology that the U.S. has gotten their hands on. They know of the aliens. They are flying the UFOs. They've got the crashed craft. They're reverse engineering. It's, it's that. And that there is a secret cabal known as the MJ-12 who have been set up as a kind of liaison with the aliens. And the documents are a known forgery for all kinds of not too difficult to discover forensic evidence. Like they don't have, they use the wrong terms and they don't have the serial numbers. A lot of anachronisms. Yeah, like they mention organizations that don't exist at the time in which the documents apparently were written and or they use the name of a base that was the wrong name for the time it was supposed to be but it was the exactly. it, was, it was renamed later when yeah. the forgeries were actually done yeah so it was for somebody who doesn't know all of this stuff and of course nathan and i had to research and find out about it but they could i guess appear legit and so these were the kinds of things that Benowitz and others were shown in super secret. Like, okay, listen, um, Doty would say, paraphrasing him, he would say, you know, if, if you tell me what you know, I'll tell you what the real deal is. And then he produces these, you know, ultra top secret, beyond top secret documents, which purport to reveal the quote unquote truth. And then that gets like all mixed into this big TV special, which I think airs in 87, can't even remember now. 80, between 87 and 89. Starring Mike Farrell. Yeah, from MASH. Which right? I watched at the time. Yeah. Now we're getting into like our living memories yeah. of the UFO stuff. And this is the kind of where, again, like with Alternative 3, it wasn't obvious whether it was supposed to be a joke or not. But a lot of people took it very seriously because it was a kind of television expose of the stuff that's going on yeah so to sum up the 40s to the 80s now it is a difficult thing to try to study the ufo movement every time you look closely at something it fractures into a million pieces mm -hmm. every time you think that you've gotten a hold of something it like evaporates into nothingness okay and, and the whole time you're doing it you're aware that there's there's something going on. There's something there. Okay. So that's a fair assessment, which I totally share with you, Nathan. But I have also another experience as well when recounting this narrative, which is that if you encounter all of this stuff 
all at once. So let's say somebody now gets, because of maybe the UAP hearings earlier in the summer, and is like, okay, I am interested in this subject. And you start looking into the history. You get overwhelmed with all of this purported evidence for the extraterrestrial hypothesis. I mean, there's the cow mutilations, and there's the MJ-12 documents, and there's the, the whole, abductions and the, the contactees. And, and the, the abductions are all rather similar to each other. Murray How Island could that pop? Exactly, and it just keeps going and going. And I feel like it's a bit like being, you know, swept up in an avalanche of some sort, and there's just no way to resist it. But if you take it step by step and look closely, you can find your way through and come out the other side and still have a kind of sense of like, yeah, this is just a whole bunch of messy things that people got up to. And so there's a, for me, a version of a good news story in that as well. But what happens to somebody who does get swept up in it? What happens to somebody who gets drowned in it? Oh, I guess you'll have to tune into the next episode for that one. And the story of William Cooper. <laughs>